Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. Greetings to you, my friends, out there. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. And this one is a very special one for all you film geeks out there. I'm not going to ramble too much at the head here because this week's episode is packed to the rim with juicy movie speak. My guest this week has just finished co-producing Ang Lee's latest film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. We're going to get into that. We're going to chat about working with Darren Aronofsky on The Wrestler. We're going to chat about his life, his love of the abstract. My guest this week on Coming Up Next... Frank Murray. And before I hit crossfade into the interview, don't forget, jump on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, friends. Look up Coming Up Next, hit the subscribe button, rate and review the show, and I'll keep bringing you weekly rambles with the world's top creators and creatives, like this week's chat with Frank Murray. Billy Lynn's uh, long halftime walk comes out soon, doesn't it? It's coming out in the next few weeks. Yeah, there's a... um they're not calling it a premiere because it's a, you know, with the festival, but it, it will unofficially premiere at the New York film festival next week. Uh, so I think there's a press screening with, uh, all the, uh, Sony and Columbia people on Friday. And then we're going to have our cast and crew, uh, first screening on Sunday and it will be exhibited at 120 frames per second, 4k 3d, in its intended uh, native format. Yeah, wow. Um, and uh, unfortunately for you in London, it doesn't seem like um, there's going to be any screenings in that format. Uh, no, that's a bummer. Think, yeah, it kind of sucks. I think that, you know, uh, there's... Uh, the exhibitors are, you know, have limited ability uh, to essentially show it that way just because the technology is essentially you know, surpassing, um, their ability and it's become a little bit of a thing. And I can't really speak to it too much because it's really, you know, uh, the plan for distribution, you know, happened all behind closed doors yeah, at the studio, but obviously Ang's vision, uh, is to see this kind of become the norm. And it's really just, you know, the first step in, in that process. And, and like anything else, it just takes time. Uh, but it, it will be screening in New York in that format uh, during its theatrical release uh, uptown at the uh, Lincoln Center. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So middle of October, it's, uh, it's, it's having its screening. When did you first sort of start your time on this, uh, on this project? Uh, we started in October, I want to say October of 2015. Uh, that's when I, uh, got involved with, uh, the executive producer, Brian Bell, who I work very closely with. Um, and, uh, it took us all the way through, uh, June of, uh, 2015. Yeah. Wow. It must be pretty amazing to watch someone like Ang Lee and with this kind of cutting edge technology, even though, Ultimately, it may not be screened around the world in its intended format uh, to be kind of watching this master at work 
using and and uh, and kind of taking advantage of this groundbreaking way of making films must be pretty cool. Yeah, it was very cool, but it was you know the experimental nature of it uh, was such that it was uh, a little terrifying at first. Nobody knew what to expect. Uh, essentially, uh, the genesis of the project uh, or the genesis of the idea for this technology started with uh, a project that he that he's still uh, very keen on and, and hopefully we get to go into production on that in, uh, next year, which is um, a biopic on the rivalry between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier wow. that, he, that he wanted to cover in this format expanding from what he'd kind of done for on life of Pi and trying to take what Peter Jackson had done for the Hobbit where he shot at 60 frames and essentially doubling down on, on that, uh, uh, frame rate. And so we didn't really know, you know, what we were getting into and watching him is amazing because his eyes see, they see things that we just don't. And he and that that's true even when we do lay eyes on on the product and and the test results, uh, you know the test that we ran in October and November of the year before last, heading into it, he was able to pick up on things that we just don't understand. And uh, I I consider myself pretty well tuned to that medium. <laughs> yeah. I've watched you know plenty of movies, and I'm always I always try to you know stay on the <clears throat> on the forefront when it comes to experiencing uh, different ways to, to, to view things, he, he works on a completely different level and sort of the, the rush of, you know, trying to get to his level and understand exactly what he's looking for. And, 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 you know, eventually delivering on that is a challenge, but he's very generous and he's very, um, he makes it very, very easy because he, he lets you in close um, more so than a lot of other directors, certainly directors of his stature. Uh, he's very sort of uh, inclusive. You know, he feels it's very important that he surround himself with people that just get it. And for this, obviously, the technology was the driving force. The subject matter initially, you know, at a, you know may not have lent itself to that. I think that when, you know, our friends at Ink Factory, they're London-based, uh, the producers had optioned uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, the novel, which is a brilliant book. And they had taken it to TriStar. And Aang only became available because the Ali versus Frazier project that he wanted to do, uh, you know, with this new, uh, this new technology kind of fell through. Uh, I believe it was with Universal at the time. I think that they kind of ran out of time um, in figuring out how to, you know, pull it off. Uh, so essentially TriStar inherited Aang and put him together in this project, but they inherited the, his idea for the technology as well, which kind of fell on us to figure out, which was awesome. Uh, it's very rare that, you know, you have the opportunity to um, experiment at that level. And, uh, you know, we did it. We pulled it off. It was, it was hard, but I think the results are uh, definitely worth it. And I think it's going to take though it's going to take a little time for audiences to sort of wrap their head around uh, this new paradigm. Uh, I think that I agree with Ang that it's, it's one of the only ways that um, we're going to save the sort of, uh, you know, cinematic experience or the, you know, the, 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 um, 
the business of going to the movies needs, you know, a shot in the arm. And hopefully this is something that, you know, helps it along. Mm. What What is the, I suppose to use your words, what is the new paradigm that you're kind of referring to? Well, it's about, it's mostly about immersion and it's about sort of getting rid of these filters that over many, many years, you know, we, we've become accustomed to as far as the, the medium and, and how we're immersed in the story and, and, and that separation between audience and action. And the idea of 3D, obviously, in essence, is to sort of break that down, just like, you know, for the same thing color did uh, for film, the same thing sound did for film, you know, prior to the golden age of cinema. Uh, this is basically the, the, the next chapter, the next frontier. And essentially, uh, what his aim is, is to essentially you know, break down this idea that we need to stylize in 2D or style, you know, uh, the way that we have and essentially taking all of these things that make 3D, you know, a more difficult pill to swallow, like motion blur and that kind of thing. And just essentially finding a way to take that away so that the, the immersive experience is complete. And what's interesting about, you know, the first time you lay eyes on this um, is that, Again, our brains are so conditioned to seeing stories through the cinematic medium being told a certain way, it, we're not sure how to react to it. And a lot of people initially, you know, have this reaction like, "Well, it looks like weird cheap video," or you know, there, there's been very strange commentary. But I think that across the board, that only happens when they're shown snippets for only a few minutes at a time, because they can't really, you know, allow themselves to sort of fall into the accept the acceptance of that much information and but once you stick with it you lose yourself in a way that's sort of completely impossible to sort of put into words because it is it is actually greater than your own reality the the fact that you're essentially seeing that that level of detail uh blown up at that scale with no motion blur in 3d you know aggrandizes reality in a way that's sort of um takes time for the brain to adjust. But once you're in it, it's like, you know, nothing else. It's very hard to explain. And I really hope that people get to experience it. And I really hope people take the time to get out there uh, in those few markets in LA and, and, and New York, at least in the States. And I think there's a couple other places in, uh, in China. I know there's a, a screen in Taiwan and there's uh, one in Beijing as well that will be exhibiting it uh, that way. But it's, it has to be experienced, and I think that he's accomplished something that no one else has, and I'm really, really hoping that people kind of catch on. It's amazing, man. It, it sounds it sounds incredible. It sounds like something that could kind of carry a new generation of uh, filmmaking forward. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's kind of inflating it um, unnecessarily, but you know, it's certainly, as you say, you know, people need a reason to kind of get out of their house with the giant widescreen TVs and Netflix and actually fork out, you know, 15, 20 bucks to go and see a film. And if you're going to give them an immersive experience, that certainly seems like a good reason to me. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it, it comes at a cost and it's going to have to be a cost that's essentially, you know, uh, passed on to the audience at some point, because in order for exhibitors, you know, theaters, et cetera, to, to be able to outfit with the proper equipment, the, the laser projectors with the, you know, that have the, the foot Lamberts necessary to, to be able to project that frame rate with clarity. 
it, it's not, it's, it is cost prohibitive. Uh, and this is kind of one of the challenges. Eventually, every, like everything else, technology becomes a little bit more affordable. But, you know, right out of the gate, it's, that is one of the challenges. And, um, you know, we're hoping to see uh, some good results from, you know, the test screenings that are, they're going to come up uh, with this. Um, I think that with, with this particular film, there are sequences that, you know, work better than others for the layperson to kind of, you know, uh, accept the technology. But Aang's goal was really to focus on the dramatic uh, applications of that, that kind of immersive cinema. And that's what was really, really interesting. You know, we think of 3D and high frame rate as a means to kind of punch up action sequences. And of course, we do have them in, in Billy Lynn, and it's extremely effective. In fact, that's if you look at the reviews from the screenings that happened uh, uh, at IBC in Amsterdam and uh, at the uh, tech conference in, uh, in Las Vegas uh, earlier in the year, uh, you know, people kind of latch on to the, the war sequence, but the drama and the quieter beats are really what Aang wanted to focus on uh, to basically sort of, you know, see audiences lean forward in, you know, in their seats uh, to kind of feel um, a deeper connection, you know, with the actors. And that experiment in itself was very, very tricky as well, because all of these sort of cinematic tricks that we use, uh, the cheats are no longer uh, possible because the, the, the amount of information that, that you're working with means that makeup, for example, is something you can't cheat. So the approach was, you know, almost no makeup. And the only makeup that really came into play was for continuity purposes as opposed to, you know, dramatic purposes or, or effect or vanity purposes. Um, so that changes things. You know, when you deal with in-camera, you know, mechanical effects, your margins are almost non-existent. So our guys knew what they were up against and they delivered, you know, really incredibly um, on, we had kind of two teams. We had a team stateside to deal with the, you know, football and halftime show portion uh, where pyro had to be real. All the lighting effects had to be real. Everything was very, very much, you know, in camera. I mean, VFX, enhanced some of it, but mostly really when it came to crowd tiling to fill up the stadium, the rest of it we had to do. Uh, and then when we were out for the, uh, the war portion, we couldn't really cheat on the, uh, on the explosions and that kind of thing. It really sort of had to be done. Most of it had to be done in camera. And uh, we take it for granted now, VFX enhancement is such a thing. We didn't have the budget to essentially you know, just lean on that as hard as we would on something else by virtue of the fact that shooting at 120 frames per second means, you know, five times the amount of information. Five times the amount of information means five times the cost once it's, you know, imported into a computer. Mm. Um, and it also means about five times the light, which is a whole other uh, challenge that we were confronted with. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I want to think that, things are going to be moving that in that direction for sure when you're kind of working at that uh that end of the spectrum you know there's there's so much i suppose risk and so much at stake uh to be i suppose given the license to kind of test something new in that way uh 
would probably be both a liberating and terrifying kind of experience from a producer's point of view. Yeah. How, how did you kind of overcome some of those, those fears and those challenges? Well, you know, the thing with film is when we always say like, you know, producers and directors, it is a collaborative effort. And we weren't the, the, the way we kind of made it through it is that we were in the same boat as everybody else on the crew. Uh, everyone had to stick their neck out. Everybody had to essentially uh, risk their reputation simply because they were going to approach things in a way that, you know, their, their comfort level, they were completely outside of their comfort zone. Uh, and that is true for camera. So our DP was John Toll, who's a genius, an Academy Award winner, who had, you know, the fear <laughs> right out of the gate. Yeah. And, you know, we sat down for, you know, many, many, many meetings, essentially talking each other off the ledge about exactly how we would put this <laughs> together, how this would be lit, what lens choices sort of uh, needed to be made to sort of satisfy Aang's idea to have like sort of like different degrees of fidelity uh, to at different parts of the story where he was going to essentially he uses image as a narrative like you know uh, very few people whereas it's not just the composition of the image but essentially how it essentially feels to the eye and how it's essentially then interpreted uh, by the brain and he goes into this you know level of minutia and that sort of like you know piles on this in the unknown so you know as far as camera is concerned that was crazy and and extremely daunting. And I knew John was as scared as everyone else. So that, you know, that helped. And it's the same for the art department. You know, we had conversations about really making sure that we didn't pick locations that needed a lot of touching up or, or, or scenic work, because even the greatest scenics in the world couldn't sort of make something look weathered as well as the real thing. Right. Because there's so much detail that you could see brush strokes. You could see that those cheats. So they were, you know, completely, you know, terrified. Uh, makeup, same thing. What if they fail? What if it looks terrible because they can't use the same amount of makeup? And again, we really went after the best of the best in the industry and they delivered in a big way. But they had to, you know, put their, you know, their safety blankets aside in order to be able to deliver this. And so, you know, when you ask, uh, was it daunting and how we dealt with it, we kind of, everybody just, you know, held hands and, <laughs> you know, and jumped <laughs> off the cliff together. And it wasn't just Aang or the producing team or the production or production management. It was literally everybody. So that makes it a little bit easier because, you know, when you hit the water, you know, you're not alone. Mm. You belly flop, you're doing it with everybody else. And it's, that's part of the adventure. And that's what, you know, makes the medium so interesting. You worked your way up in a kind of interesting way you worked your way up as a uh, production accountant and yeah. then um, became a first production accountant and then moved into production managing or production management and then uh, into producing yeah I mean the at the very beginning I mean you know at the very beginning I was a film school student and my aspirations still like you know, not probably 90% of people that come into the business was to write and direct uh, my own stuff. And I, I, that's still uh, the case, but it's sort of become a little bit more of a, you know, moonlighting thing. And it's kind of what I do on my downtime as opposed to what I do uh, as my principal bread and butter. But I started out, you know, in Canada, in Montreal, 
as an aspiring filmmaker myself. And I, you know, became friendly with, you know, some fringe filmmakers that were, um, that, you know, dabbled in the, you know, heavier kind of genre world, mostly horror and extreme horror and extreme genre directors like, you know, Larry Fessenden and uh, Nacho Cerda out of Spain and my dear friend Douglas Buck, people that, you know, aren't necessarily, I mean, Larry has a pretty good uh, uh, following, but, you know, guys that haven't made that many movies, but for that brief period in the late 90s, they were kind of really pushing the envelope when it came to, uh, you know, audience shock, if you will. And I became friendly with uh, this Spanish director, Nacho Cerda, who uh, made a, a short film called Aftermath, which anybody who's into extreme genre is probably very familiar with. And at the time, you know, I was 21, I was just out of school. And I said, I want to work with this guy. So I'm, I actually moved to Spain with the, this idea, with just the backpack and this idea that I would just, you know, work as his assistant and, um, you know, help him develop his first feature. And obviously, you know, things never really quite pan out the way you think. And he and I hung out a lot, but, you know, I could, I could see how frustrated he was with the process. Uh, financing, putting it together. He would complain a lot about, you know, the, the types of people he had to deal with. And that kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that if I wanted to, you know, be able to be an auteur eventually and, and make my own films, that I, I better learn the business end of it right quick. Otherwise, you know, I would just sort of, you know, always complain that I, I felt I was being taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of the genesis of me starting to veer to, towards that direction early. And when I moved to New York City, I kind of dabbled with, you know, odd jobs just to make ends meet because I literally had, you know, less than nothing. And so I did everything from like working in a video store to uh, I was day trading because I moved in 2000. So it was right at the end of the tech bubble. So you can make a couple of bucks on Wall Street as a, you know, chump that didn't know anything. Yeah, wow. But, you know, that meant that also meant that we were the reason that, you know, that that tech economy collapsed because <laughs> <laughs> nobody knew what the hell they were doing. And yeah. So that was short lived. And then I was introduced to a few people that kind of worked on the uh, post-production accounting side of things. And I just jumped at the opportunity. It was a job. It was and it was perfect because I could it'll, it would allow me to kind of get into the books and get a sense of, you know, you know, how indie films were made. And that really was the launching pad. I, I stuck with it uh, for a while. Um, you know, I got lucky timing wise because I think literally a few weeks into auditing petty cash envelopes, uh, the boss of the firm that essentially placed, you know, production accounts on movies got a call uh, for a $10 million film, indie film, which, you know, was huge for somebody that didn't know what they were doing. So, my good friend Sean and I uh, went and did it, and neither of us had ever ever done anything of the sort. And we, you know, I was the the first assistant accountant on a ten million dollar movie, and I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And Sean, you know, knew marginally more than I did, and we just winged it. And uh, I guess we did, you know, well enough to kind of remain gainfully employed in the sort of you know booming indie film industry of New York city in the early two thousands. And then eventually I kind of got tired of being chained to my desk and I wanted to get back to, um, to the action. So, 
on I did a, a uh, Aronofsky's film, The Wrestler, which was a challenge. Um, you know, it's uh, that film initially had uh, Nicolas Cage attached for, and it was meant to be a much bigger budget film. And then he that whole thing fell out, and then it turned into a much smaller movie. But you know, they kind of rolled into it very, very quickly uh, without you know Darren's mind sort of ha- maybe having the time to. Uh, accept making these concessions, <laughs> these budgetary concessions. So we went into production with those challenges. And so it was kind of never enough. So it became a little bit uh, tedious on the on the financial front. So actually on that film, I kind of made a point of making sure that uh, I empowered Darren and the producers in such a way where they wouldn't end up in a position where the bond company had to step in. And I sort of, you know, gave assurances to the bond company that uh, we would be able to deliver, uh, but I had to kind of play both sides of the coin a little bit. And in doing so, I was, you know, kind of promoted, I guess you could say, to, to two positions on the film where I, I kind of became the accountant of record, the, the, the key accountant of record, because Sean left to go and prep another film. And I also became uh, the production manager for a large part of the shoot that took place uh, outside of New York City in Philadelphia because uh, the other production manager, production supervisor, had to be away for a period of time. So, you know, that's when I kind of made the leap and then I decided I wasn't going to, you know, just stick to the to the bookkeeping side anymore and just kind of focus on production management. And I did that for, you know, seven or eight years on a bunch of, you know, very cool movies. Yeah, and then eventually just started you know, demanding that I, as, as my, my scope of responsibilities got bigger and bigger, you know, joined the producers guild and started to demand that I be credited, uh, you know, appropriately for the work that I was doing. So on Billy Lynn, I was, you know, uh, credited as a co-producer and, uh, yeah, since 2015, I've been, uh, working in that capacity and it's great. It's sort of, you know, everything I wanted, and that's kind of my journey, I guess. It's amazing, man. You you've worked with some some of the you know biggest and and most accomplished filmmakers and um, writers and and actors going around. Um, what what was it like to work on the wrestler with uh, with Aronofsky? I know you kind of briefly touched on it um, in in that, but. I suppose what what's what is he like as a as a creative to kind of collaborate with? He's um, he's a force, and he it's his way. And um, Darren is sort of about as uncompromising as directors can get. I would say probably the you know, he's the most uncompromising director I've worked with, in the sense that he you know he's. He's very, very um, decisive, which is good, which is what you want. Uh, I'd much prefer a tough director to work with that's not the warmest person in the world on set who knows exactly what they want than everybody's best friend who waffles on every decision. That makes it impossible. Working with Darren is great because it's, it's you know, you're, you're essentially working with somebody who's uh, craft is so defined. His vision is so defined. His brand is so clear, uh, even though it, it, it does vary from film to film. And he's not, he's not the most self-referential director in the world. I think he's, that's what makes him great. He can kind of, 
uh, morph um, to the subject matter very, very well. I think that he's got a very recognizable stamp, uh, but it, you know he's he's uh, he's very, very versatile. But in that, with that versatility, as a, as a as a you know as a director, you know he's very he's daring, and anybody who's worked with him knows he does not he doesn't suffer fools. He walks a very very straight line. And you better be following closely, otherwise you're, you know, you'll end up in the weeds very quickly. So working on the wrestler was a challenge. The means at our disposal uh, were not what they should have been from the get-go. I think that things were maybe a little bit precipitated. It would have, it would have helped sort of have a little bit more time to kind of, you know, guide the hand a little bit to sort of come to terms with certain um, realities about the means at the at the film's disposal, but. At the end of the day, I think he did a tremendous job, and everybody did a tremendous job in delivering what was a very, very ambitious film uh, with very, very ambitious elements. It, this wasn't easy for you know Mickey Mickey Rourke's uh, big comeback role. It was hard. You know, he hadn't been in front of the camera in a number of years. He'd had his you know share of problems and issues, and he came with the greatest of intentions, and he was. You know, he's amazing. Uh, the minute the camera's rolling, there's very few people that have that guy's ability to sort of, you know, carry a scene. But it was it was a challenge. You know, he I think that he he didn't really expect Darren to be that, that hard on him. And, you know, it was amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch those two and, and these two forces of nature. And if you if you actually look at, you know, interviews from after the film, I think they there's a few of them that like, you know, the two of them sat down like a year later and there certainly is nothing but, you know, admiration and affection between the two of them uh, having kind of come out the other what the other side, you know, relatively unscathed. But, you know, during it, it was it was pretty intense. That was an intense film to make. And I think it it needed to be because that's what ends up sort of showing uh, with the end result. And that's why it's the cult film. It is, I think. Mm, that's definitely uh definitely a favorite of mine um not least because of the subject matter uh being about professional wrestling is uh something i'm very passionate about did you did you kind of this is kind of a complete aside but did you sort of get a sense of what life as a professional wrestler was like from going on the road because i i watched the the behind the scenes of that and saw that a lot of the t- the stuff that you'd be filming would be you'd actually go to a live event that was, you know, a house show or a, or a scheduled event and you'd just get your time to film the, the, the choreographed match at the end of or at the beginning of their evening. Yeah, that's, that's essentially the part that I, is the first time I was ever asked to production manage a unit. And that was in Philly where we actually shot the, the real stuff and it was for a CZW event. Uh, CZW is combat zone wrestling, which is like the, um, ultimate in, you know, bloody basement, uh, hardcore, um, wrestling. And for anybody out there who's, you know, very quick to, you know, um, accuse, uh, American professional wrestling of being fixed and fake, uh, I encourage anyone to go and see how these guys train and actually go see an event live and then they can tell me about uh, whether or not they'd be willing to 
you know, go in there and fake it themselves because <laughs> yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. And so, so we were, this, this event was set in, in South Philly, which is, you know, uh, rough. And it was at this sort of like disaffected kind of concert hall type place, uh, underneath this overpass and where the, most unsavory of like lower income working class white angry Pennsylvania kind of goes to you know congregate when they have these these events and uh, they really didn't give a shit about us being there. We kind of went in and this is sort of like you always think, especially when you're you're young in the business, you think that you know you walk in, you have cinematic immunity, and everybody loves you because you're Hollywood and. You know, the minute they see a camera there, that really isn't true of certain kind of cross sections of the population. And it was certainly the case with the CZW fans uh, when we showed up there with our our actor, our fake wrestler and our camera crews and our interruptions and our throwing up the house lights in between events. So that alone was kind of you know tricky uh, to pull off. And it, uh, it got to a point where I actually got a little bit nervous for the safety of our crew when we had one, uh, there was one bit that was, you know, uh, staged for the CZW event where one of the wrestlers uses a scissor lift to, or, or he, he no, what it was, was he actually has this thing where he stacks folding tables uh, on top of each other. And then uh, at, below the ring and then put some like, you know, neon glass in between them and then suplexes from the third rope, uh, his, you know, poor adversary down onto them, smashing through and through the through the neon glass. And, uh, you know, that was kind of his, you know, crazy finishing move. And so I was kind of, you know, and they kind of told us what they, each of these wrestlers were going to do. So I was like, oh, I was up in the balcony. I'm like, I couldn't wait to see it. And one of our scissor lists was in the corner where we had a couple of lighting setups just in case we needed to, you know, uh, punch up the house lighting a little bit. And so the guy went off script. This wrestler went off script, ran out of the ring and through the drunken crowd and climbed into the scissor lift and started driving it through the crowd. And keep in mind, there's, you know, there's kids there and everything. And he's like running over chairs and people are like jumping out of the way of the scissor lift. And then he uh, proceeds to bringing his unconscious uh, opponent, dragging him into the scissor lift, and you know, jacking the scissor lift all, all the scissor lift all the way up to the rafters, and suplexing him from the top, from the roof all the way down onto the uh, onto the ring. Good grief! And everybody just sort of like collectively stopped breathing, and the paramedics kind of had to come in and everything. Now, how much of it? was show and how, you know, injured this guy actually was, uh, is up for debate. But all I know is that that world is, is both awe inspiring and at times depressing. The Mickey Rourke character's life is pretty bang on. And some of the people that, you know, I got to meet the wrestlers, you know, back there were like the, the, the craft service setup that we'd put out for our crew and for, you know, the extras and, and, uh, the performers was probably, you know, the best meal they'd had, you know, in a week, 
And these guys weigh about, you know, 250 to 300 pounds. And they, you know, they probably should be on a, you know, 5,000 calories a day diet. And they just, and they work for nothing. They work for nothing. We were essentially, you know, paying them for their meal. And I remember there's this one, uh, if you remember the, uh, the character of Necro Butcher, who's actually a performer in the CZ, was a performer in the CZW, on the CZW circuit. Um, he's the guy who gets the, you know, the $5 bill stapled to his forehead. Yep. Yep. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he ended up getting a, like a paid in with a bottle of vodka in the parking lot as like, you know, he, he obviously got, you know, scale for his work as a, you know, as a day performer, but his tip was just like, all he wanted was a bottle of vodka. And I remember Darren sort of like make, he was, he was, Darren wanted to make sure that you know, he kept these guys you know, as authentic as possible. And so he, you know, he honored him. And I just remembered, I just remembered thinking like, ah, surely, you know, we'll do better than that. And obviously we did, you know, he got paid better on our movie than I'm sure he had in his entire wrestling uh, career, but it was, it was a real eye opener. And, um, you know, I remember at the time when we were shooting it, it was really important to me that it wouldn't read as disrespectful to the fans or to the guys that essentially do this for a living and that it would, you know, the, uh, their toughness and, 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 uh, their plight would be respected in the end through the narrative. And I, I, I remember actually having a moment where I was like, I really hope this cuts together in such a way where we're not, people aren't like pumping their fist and that, you know, the plight of these guys and the ladder they're trying to climb you know, to the bigger arena, WWE, and the difficulties that that comes across. And I think it did. And that's what, you know, makes the movie good. But, but uh, yeah, it was an eye-opener. I, I had no idea that how, how difficult it was for these guys. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of unlike anything else uh, across the board um, in, its, in its execution, in the way that people perform. And, you know, at the kind of lower end of the spectrum, the fact that, you know, these are people who are doing what they love uh, and they work, you know, they're training however many days a week and for however many years. And a lot of the time they're performing in high school locker rooms for, yep. you know, 10, 20, 50 people for yep. next to no money for 20 or $40 or something or a meal. Yep. Um but they they love it and they they see no no other kind of lifestyle for themselves. No, it's 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 really incredible and it's 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 so cultish, and it's such a I mean lifestyle is the perfect you know word. It, it truly is an all consuming lifestyle, and I find that even with the fans of wrestling. I mean you know when I was a kid, I was a huge fan. It was the WWF you know back then. And, you know, I was a huge fan of like, you know, Roddy Piper and like, you know, those and Coco Beware and like all those like weird wrestlers from the day. And uh, but after a while, I just kind of tuned out. It wasn't really my thing. But for the most part, like wrestling fans are just as, you know, fanatical as the guys <laughs> step into the <laughs> ring. And you can't you can't convince them that it's, you know, there's there are better forms of entertainment or that, you know, like. You can't really go go up to any of them and be like, really? But don't you think that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, it's just, it's way too important to them. 
Yeah. And that's, that was like the coolest thing to see too. I like have these conversations like, you know, you, you wish people were that passionate about things, you know, in, in everything, but that was just, nobody goes to a CZW event as a curiosity. That's what I found. <laughs> like nobody just said yeah. like, Hey, sweet, sweetie. So there's this combat zone wrestling thing on Saturday. I thought maybe we'd uh, go check it out. None of, none of those people were in line. Nice. It was just, you know, crazy loud fanatics that just live for it. And I think that that that's what you see, too, you know, in the film, you know, it's those fans in the audience. And when we turn the camera on them, they're that rabid. Nobody had there was no, you know, the AD department did not have to give this crowd any direction. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, and I think if I looked at how many hours I log uh, on an average week of watching wrestling, I would probably be uh a little bit embarrassed um, <laughs> it, it is it is massively a cult and uh and whenever people say to me but don't you know it's fake i say well i like to say it's predetermined because yeah they may know the outcome of the match and it may be choreographed to an extent but as you say the sort of stuff that they put themselves through is in no way fake it's pretty pretty intense and extreme um yeah. but that's that's probably enough talk about uh, professional wrestling. Uh, well, I know you want to keep going, but I'm I'm going to be the one to cut you off because I I I can't uh, I can't add to any more. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know I think there are a lot of parallels in the kind of in the lifestyle of a uh, of a of a professional wrestler and the lifestyle of a filmmaker um, because it's not you know it's it's not a job uh, that you know you kind of go to work nine to five and you come home and you hang your hat on the coat hanger and you have a martini or whatever regular yeah. civilians do when they finish their job. It's, you know, it's, it really is a, an all consuming kind of lifestyle choice that you make. And that's only something that I've kind of realized in the last few years Yeah, because it doesn't matter even if you're not physically at work, even if you're not physically at the production office, you know, or even if you're not physically working on, the film that you're currently that is currently your employment you know you're reading other scripts or you're talking to other people you're networking or you're doing podcasts or you know whatever it may be yeah it really is uh it really is a, a bigger bigger choice than just deciding that it's a job that you want to do yeah and it is it is more for others and it tends to be uh that way for those who are successful at it and who can make a career of it. And, 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 um, you know, uh, I think it's difficult in the sense that it is all consuming. And if you're going to be worth anything on the production side or anywhere, you have to let it consume you because you are invariably an extension of the director and that's what the director wants. He doesn't want you, you know, walking around telling people that you're an extension of the director. The director needs to know that, you know, it's, it's their vision. But in order for you to sort of, you know, uh, plug in, uh, you, you essentially have to, you know, walk in their boots day in, day out and essentially, you know, see things through their eyes. And the minute you start doing that, it really becomes about, you know, constantly anticipating where it might go and questioning what their ideas are going to kind of morph into. And if, if it's done right, 
it, you know, when done right, it means that it's all consuming and it means that you spend the time well after, you know, rap has been called or people go home from the production office during prep, you, it, it lives with you and you have to think about it and you have to essentially know that, you know, you're preparing yourself for those variations that just, you know, happen, uh, because it's, it's an organic process. Um, some people, you know, they find ways to essentially, you know, really keep it, you know, to the hours that they commit to it. And that's fine. And that doesn't diminish, you know, uh, their craft. But I think that those craft, that craft is a little bit more specific to things that can, you know, allow you to do that. When it comes to, you know, getting close to creative, um, you know, if you're producing, if you're production managing, everybody thinks, you know, production management is really just pushing a button. And some people work that way, but I don't think that they don't have much longevity and they don't really progress from there. You know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be the type of production manager that, uh, that gets, you know, repeat work with, with directors and, and creative producers, you have to be the person that understands, you know, what they want oftentimes before they tell you they want it. And that's, that's where the taking the home, the work, sorry, the work home with you uh, comes into play. And it's, it's challenging. It's tough on family. It's tough on loved ones. It's, uh, it can be extraordinarily difficult on relationships. You know, I had a marriage go belly up uh, in large part because of it, uh, because, you know, I, I kind of put that first and, and it's, it's tricky, you know, to, to, you, when, when you want to be in a relationship, you got to make sure that, you know, the person that you're with kind of gets it. And, um, you know, we met through, uh, my girlfriend, who's a good friend of yours. So that's how we were introduced. So, you know, you know, like, like I, when I, when I met with Sasha, was like, I, I almost like I over explained everything about <laughs> yeah. what the reality was of my, my job, just cause, you know, I was so fond of her and I was, I just wanted to make sure that if I sort of like jumped in with both feet that I wouldn't sort of, you know, drown immediately because she'd be like, what the fuck is this? You know, when she saw me, you know, start a project. And so, you know, I made, I made absolutely certain that she knew exactly what it was. And she's one of those rare people that just gets it and can be around it and doesn't really, you know, doesn't really sort of phase her those hours. And the fact that my, my, my brain is always there and she's kind of been really great at, you know, um, making sure that she kind of connects on that level as well. So she takes an incredible, she has an incredible amount of interest in, uh, in whatever it is I'm doing, developing, prepping, and she's very active too. And she'll, she'll formulate her opinions and she'll, you know, ask me questions that I otherwise wouldn't, you know, think up, think of myself. So she's actually, you know, uh, that's actually been really great. But, you know, for I want to say 90 percent of people and I'm just going to throw that out there as a warning. If you want to date a filmmaker that's, you know, good at their craft and dedicated, just be sure to know what you're getting into. (laughs) (laughs) That is sage advice. Uh, And that's one of the things that I have uh, spoken to um, a number of uh, my guests on this show about is. How do you maintain uh, an intimate relationship whilst, you know, balancing a creative lifestyle? And I think some of the things that you allude to in that are, you know, really open communication and a high level of trust. Yeah, and it has to be inclusive. Uh, And this is something I learned a little bit the hard way. 
uh, it has to be inclusive and there has to be a certain measure of reciprocity in the interest that I take even in what she does. And at first that's difficult because, you know, if it's not like directly creative, I used to sort of like, you know, block it out. But um, that inclusion is, is paramount to the success of the relationship because, and it's actually beneficial to me because I get, you know, a different perspective on things. But it's very important to me that, or, or it should be important to anybody who works in, in any creative field that they include the other person and that it doesn't become one of these things where you turn into, you know, Jack Nicholson writing in the giant lobby of the, uh, the overlook. And when she comes in, he has his meltdown and says, you know, when you hear this, that means don't come in. <laughs> and it's easy. It's easy to, to, to end up in that, in that place. Trust me. I think that that's, uh, you know, Kubrick was kind of uh, projecting something on, into that character <laughs> that, I, you know, in a little ex, in an extreme way, but that isn't far from the truth. And if, if you're creative and if you kind of like lose yourself in, in the story, uh, it's easy to sort of get into that place where you just want to keep people at arm's length so that they don't affect your focus. And I think I've over time, I've learned that that's that's just bullshit. And it's quite, quite to the contrary. If you have the right person, you, the reason you're with them is because you get along with them and you see certain things eye to eye and you share a worldview. When you infuse that worldview in, in the creative process, you know, the, the person you're with is an asset to bounce these ideas uh, off of. And, uh, you know, sharing in, in, in the process and sharing in that is actually much nicer than not. And I think that that's really the secret and that's where that's where also, you know, I would presume on their end, it makes it more palatable when, you know, you're committing 100 hours a week to something that's not only the relationship. That's that's the balance to find. And I think that uh, it's something important. If you if you go into the film business, you want to put in the hours because you have to. There's no other way. Uh, you just have to be cognizant of that. And you have to take it seriously. And it's something that you have to be very open about discussing with your significant other. Yeah, and and I think that you know, the most important thing in in any relationship is uh, uplifting uh, other people, uh, whether that's in an intimate sense or just you know with friends or whatever. It's about it's about love and support and um, and growth uh, through a kind of mutual connection. Um, and you know, I think I think it's it's awesome what you and what you and Sasha have kind of found with each other in in that kind of mutual respect for what you do. And I mean, certainly in speaking with her, she's incredibly uh, impassioned with what you do, and she's now seen significantly more films than I have. Well, she's ravenous too about it, which is hysterical. Mm. And I didn't. This is something that kind of took me by surprise a little bit. And uh, there's been some instances where she kind of raids my film collection and she's not, you know, she's not the delicate flower that a lot of people who meet her at the first time kind of because they, they, everybody kind of be kind of like basks in her, her glow. Uh, and like, like that's sort of like that, that super happy exuberance that she has. My, my tastes and my sensibilities are, I'll, we'll just say are on the darker spectrum <laughs> of the, uh, of these sort of narrative arts. And she surprised me time and again by rating my film collection. If I'll be out, you know, at a meeting or a dinner meeting with, uh, with colleagues and I come home and she's in the middle of watching something by herself with a big shit eating grin on her face. 
Uh, and I'm just like, you're watching this by yourself right now? She's like, this is fantastic. So all of a sudden I have, um, you know, a huge Michael Haneke fan on my hands. You know, I came home, she's watching The Piano Teacher and she's just obsessed with sort of like that kind of, you know, very, very dark psychological thriller uh, stuff. And uh, it makes it so easy for me to kind of be able to count on her impressions. But also the other big thing is, you know, when it, on the subject of like the people who you surround yourself with as a filmmaker, you have to be with people that can understand why someone is attracted to chaos. And it's not, it's a minority. I don't think that, you know, I think that a lot of um, filmmakers, especially on, you know, on the production side, share a genetic makeup with people that sort of naturally want to uh, work in, uh, in sort of crisis situations. Uh, because you're not dealing ever with sort of any sort of fixed variable. Everything's a moving target. It feels like the ground can open up and swallow you whole at any given moment. And, you know, you're essentially answering to people who don't really uh, work in a linear way. You know, so if, if, you're, if you're hanging out with people that sort of are naturally gravitate towards the opposite, which is order, uh, people that sort of, you know, naturally work, naturally gravitate towards professions like banking or finance or technology, things that you can sort of like compartmentalize and organize in a way that, you know, once it's done, it, it stays relatively fixed. Uh, it's something that's important to explain. You sort of have to, you know, therapize a little bit and explain, like, know yourself well enough to say, like, this is why I gravitate towards chaos. And it's like part of my personality. Are you okay with that? And uh, I think that's like the key. That's the most important thing. Like, I think it's a really hard thing to explain. Like why, why would anybody jump in, you know, feet first into something that is so demanding uh, where if, you know, if I, if I chose to put in the same number of hours in another industry, the odds are it'd be a lot more lucrative and I'd be able to do it you know, get my work done in a lot, you know, fewer hours and I'd have probably a better work-life balance. You know, that's sort of like an argument that I struggle with a lot, but, you know, with filmmaking and production, that is your balance. I think that most people do it because they want, that's where they want to be. And, you know, I think that you, you probably had that experience a little bit. There's, you know, when you're exhausted and, you know, you're, you're finishing the week into nights and you know, the office is pretty much closed. Vendors aren't really open for business. It's four in the morning. Everybody's tired and giddy, you know, that world, that sort of like, you know, camaraderie that you have with, uh, with your peers at four in the morning is it's, it's, it becomes addictive and it becomes something that, you know, you start feeling like you really can't belong anywhere else. And um, I don't like it when people liken, you know, preparing for a film or working hard for a film to like being in the military. Cause that's nothing to do with that. Like, you know, when certain actors, I won't name names, like say like, Oh, it's just like, you know, it's like I was a soldier. Like, no, it wasn't, you know, you just, it's still just make believe, but there is, there is a parallel with that feeling of, you know, and having, you know, having, inter having interviewed a lot of, uh, veterans 
you know, for research on, uh, for characters on, on roles and, and for, you know, putting together uh, training camps for actors, there, that feeling that they have of, you know, having survived a tour or two at war, but wanting to get back into it because they just can't identify with the, the, the slowness of the, you know, everybody else's world is very similar. I mean, I do identify with that very, very much. And, you know, I, I often speak about, okay, well, you know, am I going to eventually walk away uh, from the trenches and kind of, you know, take a, take a job that will allow me to sort of find a little bit more of a work-life balance? I don't always come to that answer easily. I mean, the, the idea is that, yes, eventually I'll have to slow down if only to sort of make sure I put my health first because uh, it's, it's only sustainable for so many years, I think you know, at, at that rhythm, but it's hard. I, I, most of the time after I've wrapped a movie and I've been on vacation for five or six days, uh, it's around the sixth day that I just start getting, you know, massive anxiety and I feel like I need to get back to it and I can't, I can relax for those five days and like completely disconnect. But after that, I feel like the clock's ticking. Somebody somewhere has a story to tell. I have a story to tell. I really should be you know, f uh, focused on making calls, making sure my, my, you know, my contacts don't forget about the next project, making sure I don't lose, you know, key personnel to something else. It becomes, you know, it's all consuming. You know, that's something I actually have to kind of work towards. But as far as the subject of, you know, people around that is concerned, it's not easy. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, Sasha has been great for that. You, you've, you know, just uh, produced a, uh, groundbreaking film as we kind of discussed at the beginning and you know you've worked your way up through the channels of the uh, of, of production uh, as someone who had initially aspired to be a writer director how how do you see success this is something that is a, a constant topic for me at the moment on this show I'm sure that as a 21 year old you 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 may have looked at producing a film uh, with Ang Lee with groundbreaking technology as a, a massive uh, level of success. So I'm curious to know if that, if you still kind of look at that and go, yes, that is, or is it more of a, um, it, it is, and now here's the next level. I think recognizing one's own success and resigning oneself to, you know, recognizing success uh, comes with, with age more than it does with professional accolades or, or uh, you know, successes, I, I, I think I think recognizing it is really more of a uh, an age thing than it is an you know an actual um, benchmark thing, because now with hindsight, I realize that these there's there are periods of my career like when I was in them, I really didn't feel successful at all, and I was so hungry to always kind of you know grab the next rung of the ladder that I didn't really. I didn't allow myself to appreciate uh, what I'd achieved enough in the moment. And I, I think that that's sort of endemic to, you know, to the process. Interestingly enough, I don't, if I, if I were to, you know, spend too much time on, on patting myself on the back at the time, I may not have been able to sort of, you know, uh, progress the way I have, but just to, to, you know, to go back to this idea of, you know, wanting to really like putting that much emphasis on 
getting recognition for being like a sole creative force behind any given project, either either as a writer or a director. You know, I've changed I've changed my tune over time a little bit uh, because I started to recognize that the more I worked with talented directors, the more I read scripts from talented writers, uh, the more I started to realize what my shortcomings were. And I also saw the clock run out on my focusing uh, the development of my pedigree as either of those things, a writer or, or director. And no one, you know, comes out of film school a genius. Uh, it just doesn't happen. It's really about how many, how much time you do spend behind the camera doing exactly that thing. And so for a long time, I had this idea that like, okay, well, I'm going to become so good and so indispensable to studio, to, you know, financiers and studios and producers that eventually they're going to give me my shot on the creative side and they'll know I'll be responsible, uh, you know, financially and, and, and with schedule because I'll have that background. But, you know, my, my natural creative ability is always going to be there. But the fact is, if it's not exercised through the medium, hands on, you may be intuitively smart, but from an execution standpoint, you just won't have the tools. And over time, I started to realize that that window was kind of closing, 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 closing. As I got a little bit older, I'm 39 now. In my early 30s, I started to recognize, I'm like, I don't have a feature under my belt yet. I'm still, you know, really just a grunt um, that's, you know, very good with the logistical side of it as a, as a, as a you know, project manager and as a chaos manager. And I'm going to focus on that. And lo and behold, after a while, it, it, it sort of inevitably started to close the gap between me and creative. And it, I started to get closer and closer and closer to it because I was able to anticipate and I, we talked, I talked about this earlier, I started to know exactly what they would want to hear before they felt the need to ask for it. Um, and that, that started to get me closer to the creative process to the point where I am now in a place where I'm listened to. I'm now in a place where I feel like very soon I will be able to be uh, referred to and hired as a uh, mostly creative producer, I hope in the next few years. And that happened by resigning myself to the fact that there were other people that were a lot more talented than I was. And I, need, I needed to essentially uh, buoy them and like, you know, lift them up. And sort of like, it's sort of like when you, um, I don't know if you have this thing, Al, where when you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, I think creatives have that thing where wherever you are on that line you're reading or in that chapter or, you know, during that scene, you essentially naturally project what, where you would like the story to go, how you would like that, you know, that sequence to finish, what master shot you'd like to see, you know, follow that. Uh, what film it reminds you of, where you know they've pulled from. I mean, if you if you live in that world, you you can't escape that that propensity for analytics, right? I mean, I'm assuming you. Yeah, totally. Like, I'm, I'm okay, 100 with you there. Okay, so so for a while when I was younger, 
that was a distract. If that was a frustrating sort of accidental exercise, every time I'd watch a film, and I'll use Tarantino as an example, he's a film dork, the same, you know, like I am, and the the stuff that that sort of you know made him who he is, the, the films that he revered are the same movies I uh, adore, and so from a referential standpoint, I used to always say oh man, I would have done that differently or I hate Tarantino for ripping this uh, this off of you know this grindhouse or this exploitation film that I adore and blah, blah, blah. Who does he think he is? I'm a bigger nerd than he is. And it, just, it becomes this weird sort of like <laughs> involuntary competition, yeah. which, you know, in hindsight, you realize like, who the fuck am I? I'm like, I'm like, I'm not in competition with Quentin Tarantino for Christ's sake. He's Quentin Tarantino and he's an incredible craftsman. But for years, like that's what it was. It was kind of like a burden and it just weighed on me. And I'd get so angry at these directors because I felt that I was at their level only because we'd have the same influences. And then over time, when you start spending time behind the camera, uh, you know, on the production side and you, and you log hour after hour and after hour, and then you reach that 10, the 10,000 hour, you know, mark, uh, you know, as the, the, the golden rule, you start realizing like, wow, yeah, you know, um, I probably should just keep my mouth shut and start learning from them. <laughs> and, you know, that for me, that happened late because it's just I was so convinced that I had the goods. Uh, but it took working with, you know, really good directors to realize, shit, I, I should probably just, you know, keep at this with a, a very large measure of humility. And ironically, it's when I kind of you know, made that turn in my early thirties that I started to truly progress. And I started to really feel like I was contributing creatively. And I, I really didn't, you know, fight for it in that way. I wanted to, I started to fight for the credit because, you know, uh, when you see the opening crawl and you see a lot of producers names, you know, you know, full well that there's a lot of these people that essentially are there to enable uh, the money getting there and an introduction being made and that, that sort of thing. And they're not really people that, you know, get their hands dirty and they're necessary. They're a necessary evil. I mean, without, you know, film is an extremely expensive medium. So, you know, these quote unquote producers that, you know, get credited before the grunts uh, are needed. So it's just part of it. You kind of have to accept that. But, you know, I used to get so frustrated at that. And I, so I kind of fought, you know, a little bit to be, you know, credited the right way. And finally I, I got, I got there, but it's a lot less about that than it is to just know that you have a place at the table and know that, you know, if, if Ang Lee has a concern about something and something's not working quite right and he needs solutions that he can sit with me and I can actually chime in, you know, with other people and be listened to. And that's, you know, huge. And I'll give you, you know, a very recent example of like feeling like finally I can call this success. I'm currently in negotiation, you know, knock on wood to finalize uh, my involvement as a producer and, and line producer for a smaller uh, Paul Schrader film, who's, you know, a lifelong hero of mine. He's Paul Schrader. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And, um, and so, you know, uh, I was sent uh, the script by Killer Films after I, fin I finished Wonderstruck uh, with them, uh, the Todd Haynes film that, that I just wrapped uh, this summer. And 
uh, Christine Vachon, who's another hero of mine, probably when it comes to producers, probably the person working today I have the most respect for as far as her sort of unflinching and unwavering dedication to um, to the uh, brand of, of indie film that she's uh, she's been, you know, uh, has come to be known for. You know, Happiness was probably like my favorite film for years. Kids made me want to go and study film. She sent she sent it to me, and I my immediate reaction was just like, you know, uh, and she kind of intimated that she wanted me to you know take the ball and run with it. And my immediate reaction was a panic. How does one give script notes to the man responsible for uh, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull? Those scripts, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I was like. This is when it was a it was a large dose of okay am I just gonna go do this and I'll just be a, a button pusher, and I there's no way I'll be able to connect with Paul Schrader even though I probably have some ideas of my own and impressions of my own, and I, that's the thing I had to fight through not the fact that it was going to be you know a very challenging film because it's a much lower bu budget level that I'm I, I've been uh, become accustomed to working within. Uh, those challenges are fine. I mean, uh, you know, we'll we'll figure it out. I mean, people do it all the time. They make those smaller films all the time. It was really about do I, how do I approach this, and how do I both check keep my ego in check, but also, you know, give myself enough credit to to know that you know I, I'm being allowed into the room. So you know, to give myself enough credit to speak up if I feel I need to speak up as a producer. And I've been able to, after only two meetings with Paul, to get to a comfort level where I feel like he is completely willing to hear me out on almost everything, which is, came as a surprise to me. And, you know, that was probably the, the, the greatest, most um, satisfactory realization I've had so far in my career, to know that, like, I, I, can, I can absolutely... Uh, go head to head with a you know a genius uh, when it comes to you know talking about story, talking about the medium, talking about approach, and yeah, I mean that to me that's success. It's not, it's not the it's not the red carpet photos. It's not. I don't even have any. Uh, I think you know I, I don't uh, I don't go to parties. I'm not very social in the scene at all. It's that's of no interest to me. You know, who I know is not uh, any me a measure of success. I don't think how much I get paid is a measure of success in this business. It's really about, you know, knowing that you've taught yourself and you've learned enough from others uh, to be able to sort of, you know, hang with them. Mm. And that's 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 really that's it. Yeah, I think it's about, you know, who who am I collaborating with and what am I creating and how is that being received? I think those are pretty strong markers for me anyway about um, where, where I'm at on a kind of success scale. It has to come from you because there's a, there's a certain measure of protectionism that exists, especially in Hollywood, where everybody's looking out for them. Uh, keep in mind that you know, it, it's freelance and you're only as good as your last job. You're only as recognized as the success at the box office as your last movie. And that's fleeting. And to expect accolade from your peers 
it's nice to get them, but it shouldn't be expected. It really needs to come from you and you need to be able to set your own markers and you need to be able to recognize whether, you know, when you've achieved them or not, it can't come from someone else telling you that you have. Uh, a lot of times too, people don't think to do that because it's really only shown. And if you're good, you're hired again. If you're good, you're allowed in the room. That's it. End of story. You know, and it's like, uh, you got, you got to, they're, they're little victories. You know, the idea that like, I think with filmmakers, there's this, um, you know, the Holy grail is to be recognized as this, you know, all powerful auteur where, you know, you can stand and proselytize about your vision, uh, and do so uncontested by anyone, uh, around you that may have challenged you at any point. Uh, of the development and execution and delivery of that vision. And I think those people are very, very rare. And I think that half of those rare people are just bullshitting you anyway. And they're really only, th th this is sort of like the way that they want to be perceived as the, you know, as a, a singular entity that sort of, you know, thinks all of it up and is solely responsible for this incredible piece of work in film that's just not the reality we want to you know lift these you know these uh these egos up and make sure that they do at least get to 90 or more percent of the way because they are the better person to you know execute it in the end so we have to sort of like you know keep that illusion real or you know that we have to keep that afloat and and enable it because that's part of our job but the reality is that when you come up as a filmmaker, I think the ones that are going to be the most successful when they start out are the ones that accept the fact that it's a highly collaborative process. And any film student that says, oh, you know, that uses Werner Herzog as an example uh, are going to find that, you know, they're not Werner Herzog. And it's not the, it's not the 70s. And things are, you know, things are expected to move at such a pace uh, and they need to be delivered with such a degree of efficiency that the auteur approach is all but dead. Unless you're, you know, unless you're independently wealthy and, you know, you want to just take all the time in the world to do your things your way. Uh, it's just not the way it works. And I think that the, uh, embracing that collaborative process, uh, recognizing that you could be extremely useful creatively and, you know, myriad positions and roles in the business is is really paramount to you know guaranteeing somebody's success it's, it's interesting that this whole kind of notion of of success and uh you know it really is a kind of inside job i think as you suggest um one of the standard topics that i usually bring up with people early on which is uh not the case in this an hour and 15 minutes into speaking uh is the the kind of idea of the, there being a kind of inceptive experience that you have? I don't even know if inceptive is a word. I've used it so many times now. But do do you remember the first time that you made something, or that you wrote a script, or that you performed or entertained for anyone? It may have even been you know just one person. Yeah, I I, I remember it a lot. I, I think about it a lot for a number of reasons, and I've actually had this conversation with a lot of people because people are always very also interested in why I like what I like. So I, I came up 
my, my mom was very artistic. Uh, she was a musician. She's a pianist. And so she kind of forced me into piano very young. And I did eight years at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Canada up until like the age of about 11 or 12. After which point I decided I didn't want to play the piano anymore. And I, uh, you know, pestered my parents to buy me a guitar, a cheap uh, Sears electric guitar. And I remember just, you know, really going crazy with the music and I really enjoyed performing a lot. That was the thing I, I, you know, when I, when I decided on, on film school, I was uh, really torn between continuing with the band I was in or, or focusing on, on film. The, so the, the performance thing and the, just as a entertainment as a, as a whole started pretty young and I was kind of class clown too. And I was, younger that I kind of changed over time. I, now I'm, I'm very, it's weird. Like I'm really quite reserved and I'm definitely more of, more of an introvert than I think I was in my very early years. And I think that my, my upbringing and the situation during my youth as it was may have contributed to me kind of becoming a little bit more closed, I guess, is the way, and not being the, the person that necessarily wanted to do the, wanted to be the one that did the entertaining, as opposed to the one that sort of like put it together. So my background with, you know, focusing on film uh, really has a lot to do with uh, my kid sister and the fact that she fell very ill at a very young age. She's just a year younger than me, uh, and she was five years old when she was diagnosed with brain cancer. And at the time it was, you know, everything to treat it was, you know, highly experimental. I mean, kids didn't survive it at all. Uh, so it was like a lot of, you know, very new uh, radio and chemotherapy approaches and kind of pretty radical surgeries that meant that she was basically in hospital at, at, at like, like almost like hospice level care for the better part of about seven or eight years of her life. So she pretty much, you know, lived there at the hospital. And I spent a lot of time in this sort of, you know, Montreal, in Montreal, Canada, Montreal Children's Hospital cancer ward for, you know, juvenile cancer ward. And I would go there every weekend. And those were my weekends. I'd go and see my kid's sister. And, you know, I'd look around for, you know, other kids that I'd, I'd played with the week before who weren't there anymore the following week because, you know, it was bone cancer and leukemia and just pretty awful. But when you're six, seven, eight years old, you're just kind of, you know, absorbing it as just like this new reality that you can't really make heads or tails about. And it starts to, you know, it just starts to become part of who you are. And, but it starts to distance you from your peers on the, on the playground in a way, because you're all of a sudden your childhood is sort of, you know, morphs into this weird sort of accelerated, uh, development situation. And that isn't to say that I was just naturally more, you know, brilliant or precocious. It's just sort of like, it was what it was. I just had to come to terms with certain things that other kids didn't have to. And in trying to find a way to come to terms with that, you know, film kind of played a, a, a big role. My parents, you know, were there for her first and foremost. And that meant, you know, after work on weekends, and to boot, they had my kid brother who'd just been born, so they had a new baby. So the the, the six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, you know, I had to kind of sort things out for myself. And this was, you know, it, right at the height of the advent of, you know, VHS and beta and rental video and home video. And so 
in order to sort of keep myself occupied when I wasn't at, you know, hockey practice, <laughs> you know, every cl Canadian cliche, uh, they gave me, you know, uh, video cards with, for, with unlimited use at the two video stores in my neighborhood. So basically everything, you know, all I had was a top loading JVC VHS player, uh, top loading beta player, you know, at the time, you know, like a tube Sony Trinitron TV in the basement with uh, a couch, a backpack, a BMX bike, and as many movies as I could watch. And so I just devoured media. And this, this was when, you know, there weren't, you know, sensors weren't really on top of things. And especially in Canada, I can't speak for people who grew up in the States with the MPAA, but the way the way that things were released in Canada was a little bit of a free-for-all, which was fucking brilliant because as a little kid, I could walk in there and I'd have full access to, you know, picking up clamshells with just the most, you know, horrific cover art for, you know, European horror movies that were coming in. And I just naturally gravitated towards that stuff, maybe as a means to kind of convince myself that the, the concept of death and like darkness was not, you know, I, I, I could overcome it. You know, I had horrible nightmares when, you know, when Hélène was sick and, you know, everyone in my family and my large extended family would kind of sit me down and talk to me. It's like, you know, you know, you know, your sister might not be around, blah, 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 blah. This is what happens. And, you know, I couldn't put two and two together. And it kind of really, it messed me up for a couple of years when I was little. And I, so I used, I used movies as a means to kind of like, help me, I guess, in a way. And I became completely obsessed with kind of finding answers in very dark, uh, strange films. And this is like as early as, you know, age, you know, 10, I would say 10, 11 is when I really kind of fell into it. And I rented everything, but not just, not just horror films and, and, uh, and psych thrillers, but it's like everything. I saw everything. I have this, uh, this thing that I've told people and I, if I close my eyes, I could probably get about 80% right. Uh, I, I could name you every cover of every video that was in the horror section of the Little Odessa video store in Beaconsfield, Quebec. <laughs> I could tell you every single box, like, you know, the, whatever, the 300 boxes, I could probably tell, get 80%, you know, maybe 200 right of like where they were in that, on that shelf. Yeah, wow. like, that's how much time I spent. And I would re-rent, you know, the same, same ones. And so, you know, I, and that went into my, you know, early teens. And I thought, you know, for a while I thought, oh, I'm going to be a, you know, a Olympic skier. And that didn't happen because, you know, uh, events sort of made so that I wasn't, you know, going to be able to you know, develop into, uh, that caliber of a skier or a hockey player or anything like that. So I had to really kind of focus on, you know, what I wanted to do. And that's sort of the natural progression to me was to, you know, go and make films and tell stories and, and make things that, that people would sort of, you know, react to viscerally enough that they could say that it changed their lives or it, it helped them, you know, at some point in their lives. And part of, you know, as on the, Part of it too was, you know, I became friendly with, uh, with the guys that kind of put together the uh, Fantasia Film Festival uh, in Montreal in the in the nineties, 
And I started to realize that, you know, there were other people in their basements devouring, you know, this, this stuff. And that I wasn't just like a, a lonely weirdo watching these movies. There's actually a community of people that, you know, liked them and wanted to sort of hang out and talk about it. And that's when I knew that's when my vocation was cemented. Actually, it's when I came out of the dark basement to realize that there were other people like me and that I could actually surround myself with those those people. And um, for somebody that didn't make friends very easily, uh, it was kind of revelatory and and eye opening and and made me feel good. So for me, there was no question that that's that's kind of where I needed to to go. Mm. What do you think uh, having sort of devoured films in that way and then to kind of come out and have had this uh incredible career for the last um 20 years what do you think it is that makes a good story or makes a compelling story or something that can really affect people's lives well i mean i can only speak for me uh and this is something that interestingly enough you know i had this conversation with sasha the other day I think Sasha would probably make a better sort of big movie producer and executive than I would because she's very in tune with the needs of the audience. Uh, and I say this, you know, broadly, like she, she's concerned with, you know, a story's ability to reach more than just a specific type of person. Whereas, you know, I'm a, I always say I don't give a shit. I don't care who anyone reaches so long as the author's intentions are left pure. Uh, the author's integrity is remains, you know, as unmolested as possible and that it comes from a, a place of honesty. And that could be true of a, a you know, a, a romantic comedy that I have no affinity for whatsoever as it could be true of a very, very uh, dark and disturbing, uh, you know, psychological thriller. For me, what makes a great movie or, or makes a great story is really honesty. It needs to be able to come from, from a place of honesty where somebody is not telling it only to entertain or only to, to, to give a, an audience what they want to hear. It needs to come from a place where they are expressing something that means something to them with the hope that people will latch on to what they're saying. And for me, it's difficult to say, give a formula of what works because I, I gravitate to things that challenge me all the time. And I get a kick out of audiences being challenged uh, in the cinema. Uh, I still do. I, I I'll, When I see something and I see someone take a certain approach, I smile, you know, at my, you know, I, I get happy when I know it's going to be challenging for somebody, uh, that it will uh, in part offend people. I, I like things that, that, that challenge people to sort of, uh, question convention and question themselves. I like stories that make people, uh, sometimes uncomfortable enough that they have to ask themselves, uh, why they're uncomfortable. And that's sort of like what I gravitate to. And it's, that is not what's made me money. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and I, I realized that, you know, I've been, I'm fortunate enough to sort of have a knack for 
the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And the practice, because if I'd only dug my heels in and remained stubborn about, you know, only making, telling stories that uh, fit into that sort of uh, paradigm, I, I'd be nowhere. You know, I literally, it would only have, you know, remained a hobby for me. And I wouldn't have, you know, my evolution, perfect, my professional evolution wouldn't have been around the medium at all. I'd be doing something completely different. And there's, t there's days where I feel like doing that, to be honest with you. There's days where I'm just like, okay, you know, I, I, how much more can I achieve on the production end working for major studios at this point? The bigger the movie, the more, you know, the, 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 the matrix uh, dictates that they have to essentially appeal to as many people as possible. And that stands, you know, diamet it's diametrically opposed to, to my sensibilities and my sort of like general philosophy when it comes to art. And I'm okay with that. For a long time, I wasn't. And that's, a, that's another piece of the puzzle. You have to be kind to yourself enough to realize that you, will you do end up resigning yourself to certain realities and separating the business into, you know, very different areas where they're almost completely different industries. And, and I think that for people, the sooner you can recognize that and being okay with it, the happier you'll be. But that's always a tricky question for me to answer. You know, like what for you makes a good movie? I feel like the answer people want to hear is like this sort of like, you know, formulaic thing, you know, like a save the cat sort of, uh, answer to what narrative needs to be and you know what you know what strings need to be pulled when uh i just don't see it that way at all i think a good story is a good story i think a good craftsman is a good craftsman and i think that if it's honest you know you're you're 90 percent of the way and then the, the rest of it is what how do you do, can you execute it and do you have enough uh you know knowledge of the of the medium to be able to sort of you know paint your picture in a way that's you know uh, interesting, but it's all about, for, for me, it's all about honesty and, and it coming from a very personal place as opposed to a place of needing to satisfy an audience. Mm. Making it about the work, not about the yep. outcome necessarily. Yeah. And that's how it is for my, my own career. It's, it's about the work as opposed to the outcome, you know, and there's some scripts that I get that are completely outside of what I would naturally gravitate to. But after spending some time with with the director and stuff, I said, we can make a really great movie for other people, for those people. And I can separate, you know, and I can separate myself from me being, you know, not the target audience. Uh, but that took time. It took time. Mm. What do you think basement dwelling, lonely weirdo, uh, six or seven year old Frank would think of uh, what you've achieved today? Dude, I don't know. It's just surreal, you know. Um, I guess I think it was super cool, you know. I haven't really, I haven't, I realize I really haven't compromised that much at all, because it could, I could have very well ended up not doing this. I could have very well ended up, you know, staying in in finance and just being a trader. I don't think it was it was really meant to be, but who knows? You know, maybe I would, I could, if um, if the markets hadn't imploded, you know, the way they had, and the the whole um, that whole industry hadn't had this sort of huge tectonic shift it had right after I started and I saw some money from it, I, I could have easily ended up uh, a totally corporate dude with 
this kind of dirty, dark secret love affair for fucked up cinema, you know, <laughs> that I would have like, you know, kept under wraps for the most part at, uh, at cocktail parties. But I, you know, I don't, I think for me, I, I feel extraordinarily fortunate, you know, it is harder. It's a harder life than other industries for sure. There is a tremendous amount of sacrifice involved in personal life and, you know, maintaining friendships outside of the industry is really hard. But you trade it for something else and, you know, uh, filmmakers and of all walks. And I use the term filmmaker to describe everybody and somebody would be hard pressed to convince me that uh, somebody who loves film enough to kind of, you know, work as a PA for years until they kind of, you know, find their footing is worth less than anyone else because that's just bullshit. I think everybody is on set as a filmmaker and everybody is there to be respected. Uh, but my point is like, that's my family. And I, you know, right now it's still my family, uh, for the most part, as you know, you know, Sasha and I are looking to make a move. I'm looking to like leave the States and kind of try and set up shop to make films in Europe and set up shop in London. And I'm, you know, hoping to kind of learn from that chapter eventually. But, you know, my, my family is crew. That's kind of who, you know, what I mostly gravitate towards. And I think that after a while, people stay in the business or they leave. Uh, the, the ones that stay, they stay because they realize that, okay, they can make a living. Uh, they won't necessarily be, you know, the head of a studio or a, a major recognized director, but they know that at the, from a social standpoint, from a you know, human standpoint, they can spend most of their waking hours around strange individuals that who are like-minded, you know, and that's, that's really the attraction. And that's, you know, I think those are the reasons to get into it. Mm. Well, this has been uh, an awesome, awesome uh, ramble, man. This has just been great. Uh, as a, as a, as a film geek, uh, lonely basement dwelling weirdo myself, I've uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, enjoyed chatting with you, man. I uh, I end every conversation with one question, and my one question is: What makes you silly? What makes me silly? Uh, my stubbornness, <laughs> and, the, and the fact that I, you know, I refuse to kind of grow out of this infatuation with bizarre diagonal storytelling and my fascination with the abstract. Uh, I think that that's the, that's, that's definitely what, if anybody would, if somebody was to peg me for something for being silly, that's what it is. Uh, you want to talk about my peers? Nobody quite understands why, you know, I hold uh, Jodorowsky on a pedestal above Scorsese. I just do, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese's, you know, one of the greatest and I, you know, watch his films still religiously and he's a hero of mine, but you know, he's no David Lynch either. And I think that that's probably the silliest part of me. I, I just can't, I can't get off it. And maybe that's Maybe that's limiting in my career. Maybe that's going to be, you know, the define, the defining thing that means that I can only grow so much uh, as a filmmaker in terms of commercial success but i'm completely okay with that that's awesome man so awesome and 
yeah, each time we chat, I just feel so uh, inspired and, and invigorated to go out and and make uh, make new shit. So thanks, Frank. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. <laughs>